0: All right, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Here's the good news. We'll start with that. The good news is that God is a God of grace. That God loves us even though we've messed everything up. We made a mess of our relationship with him, with others, with ourselves and with the world that he's made. See, God loves you not because you're lovable, not because of who you are, but in spite of who you are. That's the gospel, and I hope it's comforting to you this morning. But I've got bad news, too. The bad news is that God is a God of grace. That means that God loves other people who are also sinners, groups of people you don't like. If he loves sinners, that means he loves individuals who have sinned against you. And this whole business of being sinned against by others, this is, Very much part of what the 12-step program associated with AA makes you come face-to-face with, doesn't it? If you don't know much about it, one of the steps is making a list of those with whom you hold resentments against. Usually each person's list comprises somewhere between five and 20 people. And if you were to make that list, yours probably would too. What you would find is that many people on your list are close friends of yours, that They're family members who you would actually say that you love. But if you're honest, you can see how you resent them at the same time. In fact, what AA does is it, it says that there's a correlation between how much time you spend with someone and how much resentment you can have toward them. Makes sense, doesn't it? A friend of mine was telling me about how he was going through this step and his sponsor asked him, am I on your list? And my friend said, no, you're not on my list. And the sponsor says, when are you going to start getting honest? I thought it was hilarious. And if you wait a second, it's not hard to find resentments if you start looking for them, right? And I heard a story of somebody in AA, he made a list, and he had 900 people on his list of whom he held held resentments against. I guess it was every person he's ever known. And he started looking at his list with his sponsor and they began to find that there were multiple repeats. He had his mom on the list 12 times. (laughs) Another person on his list was Subaru. Sponsor asked him, do you really resent Subaru? The guy with the long list looked back at his sponsor and says, big time. So Subaru stayed on the list. They whittled it down to 250. See, most non-alcoholics We don't err in this direction. We tend to put too few names on our list. We're reluctant to acknowledge our resentments because it makes us really uncomfortable, doesn't it? Why is that? I think it's because we know where grace is going to lead us. Grace is going to lead us to where we're going to have to forgive. See, part of being a Christian is being honest with your resentments. Your resentments can be towards individuals, but they can be towards groups of people. You see this, don't you? The liberals, the conservatives, a certain race of people, a class of people, a particular kind of fan. I mean, I can't tell you how much I hate every time I see something stealers. But you think about the enemies of God's people throughout the scriptures. You've got the Egyptians there with Moses in in, in the book of Exodus, right? Right? You've got the Philistines with David. You've got the Assyrians and the Babylonians with the prophets. And then you've got the Romans in the New Testament. But how does God instruct his people to love their enemies? He does so in our text today. I know in your bulletin it says verses 1 to 9. We're supposed to do 4 to 7 today. Let's read it together. Thus is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, I want to look at three things. One is the call of loving the city, seeking its welfare. The second thing is how we love the city, how we seek the city's welfare. And lastly, why we love the city, why we seek the city's welfare. Start with the call. See, the Israelites here, very clearly, they're in Babylon. God had been warning them for generations again and again and again that if they persisted in their idolatry, they kept worshiping the gods of their surrounding nations, then he was going to discipline them by sending a foreign nation to conquer them. As the time drew nearer and nearer, he sent Jeremiah, the prophet, to send one last round of warnings. And he, Jeremiah told them that Babylon, which was the most powerful geopolitical power of the day, was going to invade their land, and was going to haul them off as captives. And they were going to live in Babylon for 70 years. So finally Babylon comes. They take over Jerusalem in 597 under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. And that when King Nebuchadnezzar, when he came in, there were 75,000 people in Jerusalem. 20,000 of those people he deported to Babylon. 10,000 were able to escape the city of Jerusalem and they settled in other Judean towns. The other 45,000 people were killed. The king was captured, the temple, the palace, every house was burned to the ground, the wall around Jerusalem was torn down brick by brick. I want you to imagine you're one of the 20,000 people who's now in Babylon. How would you feel about Babylon? I mean, you'd hate them. I mean, you'd avoid them because you'd be fearful of being contaminated by such a disgraceful group of human beings. Maybe you'd want to rise up, become a revolutionary against these people. Maybe you tried to escape Babylon and free to some other country. Anywhere's better than Babylon. But that's not what Jeremiah calls them to do. You see it in verse seven? He calls them to seek their welfare, to seek the welfare of a people who have run their life and to pray for them. Couldn't have been a natural reaction. This isn't instinctive for God's people. What is instinctive is seeking their own welfare, to pray for themselves. I mean, that's what they had done in the Psalms, Psalm 122. Israel is praying for themselves, praying about the city of Jerusalem. 122, starting in verse 6, says this. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Makes sense. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your good. Yeah, seek your good. It's easy to pray like that for the people you love. It's easy to pray that for the church, isn't it? For God's people. But to pray that for the world? To pray that for your enemies? Now, maybe a couple generations ago here in our country, it was... Hard to pull apart the church from the culture. The, 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 the church played such a dominant role in the culture. And there are some positives about that, and I think there are some real negatives about that. But today, what we find is our culture is more and more hostile to Christianity. You feel it, don't you? I mean, a pastor friend of mine was telling me about talking to his kids, and his kids uh, were, had come to him, and they said that they were being harassed at school because... Of his job, instead of so limit the difficulty of being the child of a pastor, which is already really difficult, he told them to tell their classmates that their dad worked for a nonprofit. It'd be hard. I mean, think about if you were part of that family, how you would think about those kids who are harassing the kids of the pastor. It'd be easy to consider those kids the enemies, right? Maybe you have your own story. You have your own story of being ostracized or marginalized. You have your own story of being canceled. And it's easy to make those people our enemies. But the scriptures, especially here in Jeremiah 29, says we're to love our enemies and pray for them, not against them. And we're to seek their welfare. What might it look like? What might it look like to seek the welfare of our enemies? What might it look like to love them? Well, look what happens in this text. You don't see Jeremiah saying, all right, we're going to have an evangelistic campaign. Uh, We're going to do a little door-to-door action here. Uh, And you're going to introduce yourself to the person at the door. Hi, I'm one of those people from Jerusalem. You burnt my house down. You killed my sister, my parents, and my children. You know that's terrible, don't you? Don't you feel guilty about that? Well, you should. But if you convert to my religion, you won't feel guilty anymore. It's not what happened. It was an evangelistic campaign. That's not what God, through Jeremiah, calls the Israelites to do. What he calls them to do is in verses 5 and 6. He really has three things for them. The first thing he tells them is he tells them to build houses and live there. The second thing he tells them in verse 5 is to plant gardens and eat their produce. And then verse 6 lays out some things about family. When he lays this stuff out, he sounds like a realtor. Now, I know some of you guys are realtors in here, and I'm not ripping on you. But, you know, realtors, like any marketer, kind of makes things, things can sound a little better than they actually are, right? I mean, pastors are real guilty of this. You know, charming to a realtor really means small. Needs some work usually means needs a wrecking ball. A luxurious library can mean just a walk-in closet that's got a bookshelf on it, right? But what Jeremiah's doing here is he's not over-promising and under-delivering. He's making a promise that if they commit themselves to these ordinary tasks, these mundane tasks, the city really is going to prosper. And that first one is about building a house. See, Jeremiah told him that they're going to be here for 70 years, so you might as well just settle in. You might as well provide some shelter for yourselves. You might as well give up the delusion of speeding up God's time frame of heading back to Jerusalem. See, if you were from Jerusalem, if you're one of those 20,000 people that deported, I bet you every other zip code was more desirable than this one. But Jeremiah calls them to commit to it. Commit to a place. And so for me and you, the call isn't necessarily to be a homeowner. The call is to commit to a place and to live there. I would even say, I mean, I I lived somewhere for three and a half years. I lived in a second place just for 10 months. And I would say they were more like long visits than actual homes. See, to live somewhere for the long haul, what it does is it limits your options. That's scary for many of us. It means you got to quit daydreaming about moving, thinking that somewhere else is better than the place you're living. Now, I'm not saying that you should live in Lexington forever. I'm saying you should live in the same place for as long as you can. I think it can be freedom. It's freedom to devote yourself to the city. I mean, think about a fuse box. If you've ever lived in an old apartment or an old house that had old electric wiring, then you know what it's like and how sketchy it can be. That if you have your hair dryer and your dishwasher and your stereo all playing at the same time, what happens? The breaker flips. Because your fuse box was installed before hair dryers were around. Your fuse box was installed before dishwashers and stereos. And I think that's what our souls are like. See, you weren't made to feel and respond to everything that comes at us now that we live in the days of 24-hour news cycles. Our wiring can't hold every tragedy, every injustice, every sorrow, and every natural disaster happening across the planet in real time. See, in biblical times, they didn't have to worry about a 10-mile radius. It was even smaller than that. It was probably more like three they didn't know anything going outside, going on outside of a three-mile radius. Now, I know there's some benefits to that. I'm not suggesting you to put your head in the sand. I'm just saying that there's only so much that your soul can handle. You've only got so many breakers. And your circuit breaker will keep getting overloaded the bigger your geography gets. You can only seek the redemption of the lostness of your geography so in many ways, the more places you're invested in, the more media you consume, the more you'll be tempted to care about more than you can. So like those Jeremiah's addressing here, we need to commit to place. We need to build homes and live there. Next way we seek the welfare of the city is right there at the, at the second half of verse five. You see it, plant gardens and eat their produce. Now I know some of you are in the ag industry, I know some of you got your tomato plants are doing great in the backyard, right? You got them all potted up. But this isn't a call to be an urban gardener. It's at least used here by Jeremiah as a metaphor for work. See, planting gardens, it speaks back to the stated purpose of Adam and Eve's existence back in the beginning, right? I mean, the creation account says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then, Eve was given to him as a helper, a helper to keep and tend the garden. So we were made as human beings to work. Now, many think that work is a result of the fall, but work for Adam and Eve before the fall was thrilling. See, you might feel exhaustion. You might be bored. You might feel a lack of purpose at work. But Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they went to bed every night perfectly content with their work. Wouldn't that be amazing? See, God has given each of us a a postage stamp size piece of his creation that we are to tend and to keep, not to tend and keep a little garden. So just like Adam and Eve, they were going to bring out all the potentialities latent in their garden through their work, so are we. But what might it look like? What might it look like for you to bring out all the potentialities latent in your postage size piece of creation? Well, think about your job. If you're in business, you don't need to quit your job and work for a church to do gospel work. What you need to do is you got to ask some hard questions if you're in business. You got to ask questions like, How does the profit, how does the, the product I'm offering benefit the welfare of humanity? You got to ask the question, What's the role of profits in my business? You got to ask the question, will my particular business wrongfully take advantage of the marginalized or the environment? Or take a medical professional. If you're a medical professional, you don't need to go do medical missions to do gospel work. Rather, you got to ask some different questions. you got to ask questions like, how do I offer care that gets to the deeper causes and not just treat symptoms even if it's not easy or desired or efficient or cost-effective? you got to ask the question, how do I treat patients not as problems to be fixed, but as image bearers of God? You've got to ask the question, am I in this profession because of the financial security that it provides or because I desire to serve those under my care? These are hard questions. But as a church, we need to view Mondays as important as Sundays when it comes to seeking the welfare of our city. I know that work's grueling. I know that it can be boring but it's also possible that your work is the means that God uses to prosper our city. There's one last ordinary activity. You see it? It's family. Verse 6, "Take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease." see what is doing, he's holding up the importance of family. He's saying that marriage and parenting are crucial value to what God's trying to do among them in exile. He's saying that the most powerful ways to have an impact in Babylon is to have children and pass the faith down to them so they can pass it on to another generation. So you see, for Jeremiah, in verses 4 to 7, he wants these people to see that they're not captives, they're missionaries. Brother and sisters, so are you. Do you want to seek the welfare of Lexington? Or more specifically to our church, the neighborhoods in and around downtown Lexington? Well, then live here for the long haul. Be faithful in your jobs, invest in your family. I know it seems mundane, but if you think about it, if you just boil your life down, your life largely comes down to those you share DNA with. It boils down to going to work. At, boils down to taking care of the place in which you live. I know that's not very, might not be very motivating for you. You're a little more of a vision kind of person. You need something big and exciting. That's not what we see here. But we do get here from Jeremiah's, we do get a why. Why should we be about this? Why should we be about verses four to six? Well, he tells us in verse seven, He said, yes, you do it for the welfare of the city. But do you see what he also says there in verse 7? That you do it for your welfare. He says, be selfish about this. Do you want to benefit? Do you want to be blessed? Do you want your welfare to increase? Then seek the good of the city. Love your enemies. It's good for you. I mean, that verse that Justin showed up here just a minute ago, Paul says, I do all this, meaning ministry, for the sake of the gospel. And then he says that I might share with them and its blessings. You'd expect the verse to say, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that they may share in the gospel's blessings. But he says that I do all this so that I might. Philemon's verse 6, Paul says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. You think he'd say so that God might be glorified or so that people might come to Christ. That's what you expected to say. But it says this, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that you have in Christ. So another way of putting it is we only understand the riches of the gospel when we're active in ministry. Now, I know we, we, we often look at think about loving our enemies or doing ministry. We, we think of it as pouring out and it is that it does take energy for sure and we're acutely aware of how involving ourselves in the lives of others that it costs us something but the scriptures say that it costs more not to love our enemies see when you love your enemies when you do ministry you're 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 put in touch with the limit of your ability to do what seems impossible When you love your enemies, it's going to stoke the anger that you have towards them. When you love lost people, it's going to test your patience because it's usually walking a long road waiting for them to respond. See, in short, involving yourself with sinners puts you face to face with your sin. And that's a really good thing. You'll be reminded that Jesus loved you not when you were lovable, but when you were a sinner. You'll be reminded that Jesus loved you when you were disinterested in the gospel. You'll be reminded that he loved you when you were his enemy, that it was your sin that separated him from his beloved Heavenly Father, and he was glad to pay the price so that you might know grace. And all these truths, all these truths go 3D when you're sacrificially committed to the welfare of your city. I want to close with a quote. This quote is from Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor in England in the late 1800s, and uh, London at the time was one of the biggest cities in the world, and uh, his quote is about living in that city. I think it's apt for us. Here's what he says. He says, The city is full of noise and stir and bustle and much travail. When was the last time you used the word travail? Many are its temptations, its losses and worries, But to go there with a divine blessing takes off the edge of its difficulty. To remain there with a blessing is to find pleasure in its duties and strength equal to its demands. A blessing in the city may not make us great, but it'll keep us good. It may not make us rich, but it will preserve us honest. Whether we're porters or clerks or managers or merchants or magistrates, the city will afford us opportunities for usefulness. It's good fishing where there are shoals of fish, and it's hopeful work for our Lord amid the thronging crowds. We might prefer the quiet of a country life, but if called to town, we may certainly prefer it because there is room for our energies. Today, let's expect good things because of this promise. And let our care be to have an open ear to the voice of the Lord and ready to execute His bidding. Obedience brings the blessing. In keeping his commands, there is great reward. So, brother and sister, may we experience these rewards as individuals and as a church. Let's pray. Father, would you empower us to move into the city, into our little neck of the woods, our little postage stamp size piece of your creation, Lord, as servants, Lord, as people with confidence that you're going to use us. Oh, Lord, help us. In Christ's name, amen.